This week, Sherry Oz, Special Agent in Charge of the Phoenix Drug Enforcement Administration Field Division, tells us about her journey from being a ball girl for the Chicago White Sox, to working undercover at the Phoenix Police Department and investigating the Hells Angels, to joining the DEA. Let's get back to your Phoenix PD stuff. What was the first really scary call you remember going on? The one that where you really crapped your pants? Well, so for the record, I've never crapped my pants. We'll just put that out there. Um, I just well, you're not under oath either. So how how do we know? (laughs) I can assure you. I promise. Um, But my very first day solo. So my very first day, I'm off FTO. The cord has been cut, and I am driving my police car all by myself. And it's thrilling. Like this is pretty cool. Yes, right. Your very first day, and I'm leaving the briefing. So I've loaded up my car. I have everything. And I double check, triple check because all the, all the mistakes I've made now on training, I, I want to make sure I don't make those mistakes now. So I have everything I need. I load up my car, hot call comes out, not in my area, but the area I have to drive by to get to of a, a shooting in progress. So I'm going right. So I answer up. I'm, I'm on the way. I'm the first car there. It is, it is a shootout. There are five dead people, and there is carnage and blood and people everywhere. It was in a bar. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back, everybody. This is the ultimate podcast on the interwebs. This is Game of Crimes, and I am your host, Morgan Wright, and I am joined by my other host, literally my partner in crime, Murph. Hey, everybody. It is the Murph Man, the Murph Man and Morgan, Murph the Smurf. (laughs) By the way, we're going to have a little section where we talk about your stripper names in the outro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we... we (laughs) We got stripper names. We're not going to say them right now. This is coming up in the outro. And if you guys heard the end of episode 16, by the way, real quick note, that was not our fault on why that episode got cut off. That was a platform issue. We called them. We talked with them. It happened, uh, I guess, to a couple other podcasts. So if you didn't get the end of it, just delete what you currently have, download it again. It's all fixed. It's there. But anyway, that being well, said. We told them next time I'm calling some Colombian friends. We won't have that problem yeah. ever again. They won't. And then have I'm going to call Dominic Bolafron because he knows some guys <laughs> who can make some guys, you know, disappear. Yeah, you know, I what know I mean? A guy. I know yeah, a guy. I know a guy. Hey, but but I'm telling you that what a great episode. We got a lot of good feedback too on people talking about the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, you know, there are a couple of people actually said on uh, on the fan page, uh, you know, in our main Facebook page and stuff like that. Just. It was very emotional for them. Some of them were mm-hmm. from Boston, and I'm telling you, Steve, that that is just a, I mean, that that's a hell of a story. And like again, it's like one of those things is when it's like, my gosh, you know, he, the investigation's still open, and not everybody's been identified. I'm getting some feedback from uh, from guys who are not just guys, people who normally would not feedback on different social media that we cover. That are like, holy cow, how in the world did you get that guy on there? How'd you get Ed Davis on your show? Because well, I was know tough. people. We asked. <laughs> That's right. Well, plus, good thing is, is Ed and I go back a lot of years. But anyway, yeah, yeah. that being said, hey, everybody, welcome to Game of Crimes this week. Uh, again, just hey, some quick housekeeping before we get into this. Head on over to Apple Review. Please give us five stars. I'll tell you why. It makes people see our podcast. It makes us 
uh, rocket up the charts, you know, and more people can hear these great stories like Ed Davis and the one we got coming up that I'll have Steve tell you about in a minute. Also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got merch there. Uh, our mailing list is there. This is where we post a lot more information about the episodes like pictures and stuff. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter and at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. But I'll tell you, the fun one, Steve, has been lately has been Patreon. We did that special episode on Gabby Petito mm-hmm. uh, where we talked about that. Uh, that got a ton of feedback. I it, I think because it's topical, but basically I think it's because Brian Laundrie's a douche nugget who ought to turn himself in and just put this whole bullshit charade to an end. Hey, accept the consequences of your actions. You made that decision. It's time to pay your dues. Sorry, I get a little redneck sometimes. Get out of love. Well, so do I, you know, and I'll tell you what, um, his dad, his mom, I've, I've seen them on social media, on Twitter and stuff. They're putting out some messages. I mean, they're trying to make as much of a positive as you can about this. But again, folks, if, if you want to hear, we put out 15 minutes of it uh, as a tease on, on the, po- on the uh, podcast uh, feed. But the full episode is uh, if you go over to patreon.com slash game of crimes, we Murph and I do over an hour of in-depth analysis on everything from how you conduct the investigations to how you do the manhunt. And I think we, you know, like I said, got some great feedback, you know, from a lot of folks. So we really appreciate that. But we appreciate you folks on Patreon who give us your hard-earned money so that we can do this kind of stuff and crank out this kind of content. So head on over there. If you just want to do a one-off pause for the cause, paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and bring you even more exciting content. Now, real quickly, our disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We always take the story seriously, but... We never take ourselves serious, and that's what makes this podcast fun. But we also want to thank you because you're continuing to come on and you're helping us to grow, which leads us to get better and better guests on the show. We want to bring you guests that you're not going to hear anywhere else, so keep it coming. And and September, Murph, was a record-breaking month for us, too, so... It was. Just wait for October. Wait for October. We got some good stuff coming up. But before we get into October and before we get into the rest of this stuff, we're about to make history, Murph. Guess Uh what time it is. It's time for Small Town Town Police Blotters. All right. And here's why we are going to make history. We are making history because in this episode, in fact, I'm giving Murph, it's his bye week on what year was it? Because he's just done so atrociously. He needs some time to, you know, uh, just recover and, uh, you know, get better at this. We're going to skip embarrass Murph time. Uh, no, we can we can embarrass you if you want, because uh, I did find <laughs> out worry, your nickname. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but but we made history because in this episode we're gonna we're gonna give you guys extra time. All the stories came from you folks out there. We got them no, through cool. email through our fan page. So every one of these stories on Small Town Police Blotter is courtesy of our players out there. Isn't that great, Murph? Very cool. And you know what? We want to hear from our international listeners as well, because I know there's goofy things going on there. We have some international stories. We have some international stories coming up for episode 18. And see, that just shows you that that when Morgan reads these to me, I'm not prepared, so I could give you some dumb, I mean, some really intelligent remarks here, okay? No, you had it right the first time, yeah. (laughs) Hey, well, let's go to this one. This one is fun, Murph. This one is... Um, this comes from Mariah Lawson via our Game of Crimes podcast uh, Gmail. So Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com. She sent us this. Steve, a man was found asleep in a pile of stolen chicken fingers and meth. <laughs> 
the, the meth was stolen as well as the chicken? Well, well first of all, chickens know. don't this, have this fingers. This dude is an Alabama man. He was caught breaking bad with barbecue sauce. So I'm reading what the paper wrote. This is I'm not making this one up. Matthew Williamson, 37, was found sleeping in the press box of a sports complex surrounded by piles of chicken, stolen chicken fingers, chips, candy, and meth. The snoot, the outlaw snooze fest, took place last week at Pleasant Grove's athletic complex. He stole snacks from the concession stand, and this is just a couple days after he walked out of jail on another crime. So he'd been arrested on September 17th, charged with breaking and entering a vehicle, but he walked out of the Jefferson County Jail. Uh, and less than two hours leaving jail, he stole a car in Hueytown, hid it in Pleasant Grove, and they found him munching on chicken fingers and doing meth. Oh my gosh! I just oh, <laughs> there's a whole special stupid out there with criminals. <laughs> Felony stupidity. There is a federal statute on that. My God. Oh, we used to tell people that if we caught them out at nighttime, it was lurking with intent to gawk, yeah. or, or wearing felony flyers after dark. That's right. <laughs> can't can't do that. You know, well, if you sound Virginia. like you know what you're talking about, people will believe anything. Well, hey, this next one is pretty cool, too, because this comes from Liz Calise, again, VR, uh, Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com. And the thing is, her daughter is a dispatcher at this department where this event happened. This is pretty funny. (laughs) So, Steve, a naked Sebastian man was found jumping on a trampoline. Oh. That's, you know, I'm going to let that visual sit there for a second. So on Tuesday, a Sebastian homeowner called the Sebastian Police Department after seeing a naked man in his backyard jumping on a trampoline. The suspect told police, literally, he was just hanging out and enjoying the outdoors. (laughs) So they were dispatched where they observed the naked man. He was... Uh, identified as Michael Renaud. Uh, I observed Renaud jumping on the trampoline without any clothes on. He was dripping with water and appeared to have recently been in the swimming pool. Time oh. to drain the swimming pool. Oh, Time to drain kidding. it. I'm telling oh. you. So, just don't don't ever tell him about Regina, Canada. Oh no, God no, God no. <laughs> Stay away from that. They said the homeowner said he didn't know Renaud, uh, but Renaud thought that they were snowbirds. Uh, this, the naked man said he was just living in Sebastian and just wanted to get out of the house. So he was just hanging out, I'm enjoying just, the pool. He said he didn't do anything, you know, just hanging out. Just hanging loose? <laughs> That's what you call answer, my friend, is blowing <laughs> you know in the wind. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, but, but here's the other thing, too. The other thing, too, is they looked around for signs of force entry. They found that the bottom portion of the door track had been removed and set off to the side. And so what it was is Renaud said he was trying to gain entry to the home because he had to use the bathroom and he didn't want to urinate outside. Oh, like he didn't piss in the pool. I'm telling you, what a liar. (laughs) What a liar. (laughs) And guess what? Um, Was asked if he was currently under the influence of uh, our narcotics, to which he stated he had not used meth since the night prior. Oh, there you go. Uh, being honest. He, well, he's probably telling the truth, and he just had to go pee. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Hey, again, another one via our uh, Gmail account. So, Heather Carson. Very cool. <laughs> this comes from Heather Carson. This, she thought, she's actually up, uh, this is uh, Canada. She is calling us greetings from Canada and the shores of Stuart Lake. So, this one is, it's not quite as funny. It's a little funny because of the context, but what the guy does is, a, is stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a historic 200-year-old fur trading post. And so what happened was these vandals, these idiots, uh, they attacked this site called Fort St. James. They broke in near the rabbit hutches. Uh, they discharged a fire extinguisher um, that because somebody had gained access to one of the buildings. They saw this, the RCMP, uh, and the damage was done to one of the rabbit hutches on the park's ground. Unfortunately, one of the rabbits died, but four of them were missing. But some of these, some of these rabbits were... I mean, 
apparently expensive, you know, or they're mm-hmm. very native to Canada. Mm-hmm. And so uh, evidence at the scene is provide police with several leads to follow up, but without the police look to the public for assistance, what they said, which we've heard that before. So, but here, Fort St. James National Historic Site sits on the shores of Stewart Lake and features Canada's largest collection of wooden buildings restored to the heyday of the fur trade. So the site's also home to animals such as chickens, ducks, turkeys, cows, goats, rabbits, and apparently uh, some fucking morons who've got to break in and use a fire extinguisher and kill a rabbit and, and kidnap the other four, apparently. Yeah, real tough guys. You know what? But they might want to talk to the guy from Mariah's story. You know, he's probably up there with the stolen rabbit and stolen meth. Yeah, and stolen chicken fingers. Yeah, (laughs) bouncing around with the other guy on the trampoline. (laughs) Oh, Oh. jeez. Hey, well, this next one comes to me from a friend, actually a friend of mine, Stephen. You'll like making fun of him too. Uh, Not only does he work for Microsoft, he's a firefighter. So, (laughs) open season. Open season. What's his name? What's his name? And Rick Zach. And so funny, funny about this is that. What does he send me a story on? Have something to concern with a firefighter. So, <laughs> a Palo Alto woman may have been boiling bear urine when the fawn fire ignited. This lady was charged with igniting a California wildfire that has destroyed 144 properties. She said the product Ooh. was the fire was the product of a bizarre accident. What she said was, uh, according to Cal Fire officials, she allegedly started this fawn fire. Uh, fawn fire, five miles from Shasta Lake. Say that fast uh, five What's times. What's a fawn fire? Well, fawn is the name of the area, F-A-W-N. So it's oh, the area okay. that the fire was in. So uh, when she was, she started the fawn fire five miles from Shasta Lake on September 22nd when she was boiling bear urine to drink. Oh, gross. Oh, my gosh. Uh, now, first of all, how does she collect the bear? How do you, <laughs> how do you collect bear urine? <laughs> hey, Yogi, piss in the cup here, buddy. Very carefully. And <laughs> hey, when you said fawn fire, I was I, th- I was thinking, well, this came from a fireman. Maybe he meant bonfire, but he didn't know the difference. Yeah, well, it's like the old story too, is you know, like w- you know, what's meaner than a pit bull with an STD? The one that gave it to him. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes. Well, anyway, what she said was she is the California Institute of Technology graduate and self-proclaimed shaman. Told fire officials she had been attempting to hike to Canada when she became thirsty and found a puddle. Here's how she found it: found a puddle of what she believed to be bear urine. She oh. tried to make a fire to boil it, but it was too wet for the fire to start. Anyway, oh. here's a, here's an obvious statement. During her court appearance, the attorney stated <clears throat> that this suspect may be suffering a mental health crisis or something to do with drug abuse. You think? <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow! Oh, you know, just when you think you've heard it all. And We're thus, just, <laughs> end up the reading for today. <laughs> oh, man. This, but, to, you know, to Mariah, Liz, Heather, and Zach, our fire buddy, thank you guys so much for con- your contributions. We love it. Rick Zach. Like Billy Bob, right? Rick Zach. Okay. Okay, Rick, Rick Zach. Zach that's, well, okay, he's a fireman, so we're going to give you this one. We understand. Yeah, we'll, gi- we'll give you but, this one. All right. But honestly, to all our contributors, this is fantastic. You guys have some great stories out there. Keep them coming, please. Thank you very much for taking the time to do that. Keep them coming. Hey, and now let's, let's get ready for this next episode because this one's going to be fun. It's the Wizard of Oz. It's Sherry Oz, the, the head of the DEA field division. And Steve, you got this one set up for us. So let's talk about Sherry real quick and the fun facts we're going to find out about her. Oh, you guys are going to love this one. Sherry is, uh, you know, to become a special agent charged within the, the DEA, that means you're going to be in charge of a large geographical area. You're going to have hundreds of people working underneath you. You're responsible for everything that goes on in your division. 
you know, then that's agents, task force officers, analysts, all the administrative staff, secretarial pool, everybody. Uh, you have to maintain your relationships, and it's it's a very it can be a very stressful job, especially in an active area where you're on the southwest border, like the Phoenix Field Division. But Sherry has one of the best senses of humor you're going to hear on on any of our podcasts. It's wicked. It's wicked. Oh, it is. She's willing to laugh at herself and have a good time. Uh, there was even a couple of mistakes made during the recording, and it just got to be really funny. Oh, and <laughs> this is going to be fun. It's going to be this great. This is going to be fun. We left it in. We just left it in because you just can't make this kind of shit up, can you? Oh, but it's amazing. I mean, the 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 cases that she talks about and how she ended up in Phoenix—that's interesting. Uh, you know, she knew what she wanted, and, and man, she she earned it. So uh, I had never met her really in person uh, before we started doing all this, and we were introduced on video. Still haven't met her in person. But, uh, and I'm going to tell you just a quick story. You know, she is, they're, they're building that new office space in Phoenix, and she plans on dedicating one of the rooms to Javier and I because of the Escobar thing. She's and a fan girl. Stuff, no, she's so. a fan girl. Well, I might have had to pay her a little bit, but thank you, Sherry. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, she didn't have to pay for this episode and the good stuff we said about her. So I think it's time, Murph. Are you ready to play the biggest game of all? The Game of Crimes. And this week, really, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's bring on Sherry Oz. Welcome back, amigos, amigas. Now, this is not, again, another episode of Narcos with Steve and Javier. Although it probably more now, interesting. In, in your own mind. We are now, but we're traveling to one of the hottest places on earth. I mean, it's just, it's, it just fries. You can fry an egg on the sidewalk. We're traveling to Phoenix, Arizona, because we have with us, she's legendary. She's one of the few in the business. She is the special agent in charge of the Phoenix uh, field office of the Drug Enforcement Administration. We are welcoming, not the Wizard of Oz, but Sherry Oz. Sherry, woo! Welcome, they call you the Wizard of Oz, though, don't they? Sometimes the Wicked Witch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only when you have an agent that needs to get their ass chewed out, right? Once in a, once in a while, that happens. Once in a while, that happens. You look too kind to do that, though. Yeah, I mean, can 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 you get can you can you go like full ten eight ballistic, you know, on somebody? Well, I you know you should ask my kids about that, but yes, I th- I think that's um, everyone has a scary side, of course. Um, I just try to use mine when I need it. The Wicked Wizard, that's not as bad as Cruella. That's what our daughters call my wife only once, though. Yes. <laughs> that's all it takes. <laughs> all it takes. Well, this this is going to be fun because we did a pre-call with you, and you were headed out to the range. So the first thing we have to ask is, did you qualify or did you have to use your forty caliber pen? <laughs> so I did qualify, but if you're not cheating, you're not trying. So I always make sure... <laughs> As a sack, I can grab a couple extra rounds. I stuck them in my pocket just to make sure. Just so, in case. Instead yeah. of 50 holes, you had 53, but those three outside the two didn't count. I am overachiever. Ooh, what is that? What the hell is that? So I don't know. I think they're doing construction. No, we'll just keep going. And don't worry. I'll let it. I'll let it. Uh, I'll make a nice edit. Uh, I'll leave a little bit of that in, and we'll have a little bit of fun with it. So 
we're getting back into your 53 holes. And just so that you folks know, we had to edit some of this out because it sounded like we were under attack or it sounded like Sherry was under attack. Somebody was trying to tunnel into DEA headquarters, <laughs> DEA field office. <laughs> Either that or one of the agents who just got their ass chewed out is trying to tunnel out. So we weren't sure which one it was. At first, I thought it was El Chapo's wife, but she just pled guilty. So she won't be tunneling anywhere. No. Well, she might after she pleads. <laughs> Well, I, I think they're going to put her in a place where tunneling out is going to be a little difficult, at least for a while. We don't want to be embarrassed. By the way, um, she got arrested not too far from where, where me and Steve live. She got arrested out here at Dulles Airport. So we saw that happen. And actually, we had um, Paul Crane and uh, Abe Perez. Uh, we were talking about El Chapo, actually, and the arrest. And we actually talked about that as to whether or not the, she might uh, flip you know, and provide some insight. So it, that was prescient. You need to talk to Bill for a second? Yes, real quick. So outside my window, they're doing, it sounds like an air raid. So I don't know what that. Light him up. Light him up, Sherry. Light him up. Come on. Fire his ass up. I don't know how to get through that door. Oh, he's got the combo. New office. I don't even have the um, the combination to my door locks yet. <laughs> so we've yeah. got you. <laughs> yes. You I'm can't go anywhere. I'm stuck. Yes. You won't be going this anywhere. This is the fun part. Yeah. Yes. This is <laughs> And if the if you know if people only knew how the government actually works, we don't even have the combinations to our own locks on our own doors. No, you well, are a prisoner in your own office, Sherry. Need to I know, am. baby. Need to know. Need to know. They get more out of me that way. They keep me locked in. <laughs> Every once in a while, I get a cup of coffee. I'm good to go. Well, hey, let's let's talk a little bit about how you got into this thing called law enforcement and DEA. But before that, you've got a very interesting background. We found this out too from talking to Michelle Linhart. But it was funny. We found out from Michelle she was the mascot for her high school. Um, you know, we found out a lot of stuff about her. Well, we find out about you. You used to be a ball girl for the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. I had the play of the week in nineteen. 19- 94 All-Star Weekend. I caught a line drive off of Frank Thomas. Not my best catch, but a very slow week in sports. So I ended up being the highlight reel. of, uh, And my dad was very proud. One of his kids made it to the professionals. Yep. So you were on ESPN Sports Center. I was. Often. Wow. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, Sherry, real quick, turn around and wave to the guys, because there goes the bucket truck. Bill taught oh. them to move. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they're the offending they're the offending drillers go right so so normally what you would have snagged that behind your back or something or between the legs and this one just caught the air yeah this was like a backhanded you know i was on third baseline and i'm right i'm left-handed so it was it looked better than it I had better catches. We'll just say that. Yeah, Again, but considering how bad the Chicago White Sox usually were, I'm surprised they didn't sign you up. <laughs> <laughs> they were amazing, and they were so much fun. Great guys. It was a great dugout. It was it was really a great time. Did the crowd cheer for you when you caught the ball? They did. They did. You you know, from time to time, someone would bring me something and say, hey, can you autograph this? And I would look, and cool. Frank Thomas would have autographed the same thing. And I would tell them, if I sign this... It, the it's value goes up. Yes. No, it's, it's worth nothing. Um, I'll sign a piece of paper. I mean, I'm happy to give you my autograph. I just, you know, I don't want to take the value of your ball down. Um, well, when so we I, come to Phoenix, I want an autographed baseball. I'll bring one oh, up for you to autograph. Yes, oh, yeah. I, I'm, I will happily sign it for you. Remember, it has no value, though. So I'll just put that out there. <laughs> but it I, means something to us. <laughs> Do you know how many things Javier and I signed? And it ha- they have no value either, but people still pay cash for it. I'm a little concerned about some of the things Javier signed. <laughs> uh, 
No divorce papers, no custody papers. He's good. He's good. He's <laughs> good. A paternity? What? No, not me. <laughs> Hey, so, uh, but, but you know, so you went from that though, because the other thing, normally we don't dive too far in the past, but you had a couple other interesting stories because where did you go to college at? I went to college first at Western Illinois and then I finished up at Marquette, which is in Milwaukee. It Milwaukee, is really, Wisconsin. Yes, really, really cold in Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Uh, and I remember Marquette actually at one time used to actually pretty be pretty good in basketball. Um, and, but that got cold up there, and it got really cold, and being really cold was one of the reasons you made a decision. You got to get the hell out of Wisconsin. Sure. Tell us about the, tell us about the snow shovel and, and how you treated your snow shovel better than your boyfriends in college. <laughs> well, the snow shovel got to stay in my bathtub, because that's where we... That's the only place to store it. Yes. Whoa. That's all you... That's the only place available. So I was okay. working at a bar, and it was um, it was seventy below that day. And I walk out to my car, and it won't start, and it's plowed in as they often are when you live someplace that snows all the time. And so I get my shovel and I shovel out my car, and then when I go put my shovel back in the bathtub, my roommate is watching the Weather Channel, and it's eighty degrees that day in Phoenix, eighty degrees, and it was seventy below in Milwaukee. And I told her. <laughs> Yes. I told her that's where I'm going. And I had never been to Phoenix. I had didn't even know anyone that had ever been to Phoenix. I just knew that that little that little sunny, happy face with the 80 degrees was where I wanted to be. And when I graduated from college, I um, I did. I applied to Phoenix and I got hired and I came here to test for the very first time was the first time I came to Phoenix. So honestly, it was DEA's fault. I um. I kind of had an idea of growing up what I didn't want to do, and I knew I didn't want to sit behind a desk, and I didn't want to wear a suit. And I say that sitting oh, behind so a desk— Oh, so you didn't want to join the FBI. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> and I also <laughs> wear a suit and sit behind a desk now, sadly. But um, I knew kind of what I didn't want to do, and I, I was really drawn to kind of the idea of law and order, and uh, I found myself passionate about the active um, piece of, of law enforcement. And so— I met a guy who was a DEA agent, and that's really how most DEA agents are recruited. We meet somebody, and as you know, we are awesome, and so and we're fun, and we are. When you're around, yeah, a this DEA is not agent, a recruitment podcast. Yes. Come on, now, sure. <laughs> I, I take every chance to recruit if I can. There you um, go. But these are these are great people. So he let me do an internship with him when I was in college. So and that was up in Wisconsin. Up in Wisconsin, and it was over the summer. And if you know anything about Milwaukee, it's really cold, but it's also terribly hot in the, in the summer and humid. And he let me wear his raid jacket, and it was probably 187 degrees with 100% humidity. And you could not have ripped off that jacket for anything. <laughs> I, I had that jacket wrapped around me. It was the most thrilling time of my life. We we did a, a, a buy bust, and I they they went up on the curb, and I I got to like I had front row seats to the best show ever. <laughs> and then they let me come in right afterwards and talk to the guys. And, and so I had real live bad guys in handcuffs right in front of me, and we had just delivered them a whole box of dope. And so it was the most exciting thing. I had ever been a part of. And I said to him, this is, I want to do this every day. I, I know I want to do this. And he said, get your master's, learn Spanish, go be a cop. And so I did. He told me what to do. And I did exactly what he told me to do because I wanted it that bad. 
Well, but before that came along, I mean, you're giving up a career in baseball because you've got this miraculous catch on the sideline. And and you know what? See, you're not telling us everything here, Sherry. We're <laughs> you know, trained criminal investigators where we used to be. But aren't you also uh, hanging in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame? I am. How about At least that I've been now? told. But I'm between the pitcher's legs. So it's not This a clean show. This is That's family. <laughs> Good thing we marked this as explicit. Yeah. <laughs> so normally I sit on the first baseline, right? And I'm young. I'm really young. I'm a lot thinner than I am now. I was cute. And um, I, I'm on my little stool and I sit really lined up from the camera between the pitcher and where my stool. And so when the pitcher's in his his well, when he's throwing and his leg is kicked up, you can see me sitting on the stool, huddled there right between his legs. So that's the picture of me in the Hall of Fame. Some random picture. I don't even know who it was. Um, but you can see me sitting on my stool in the background. Okay, Again, boy, I, I made bet. my dad very proud. Yeah, well, I bet he wouldn't like to hear that I was between this ball player's legs. I, <laughs> right. You know, as a dad, well, I would Steve, like it would have been worse if I heard you say that. Yeah, <laughs> you have to take it in context. True. It has to go in context. It has Absolutely. to go. Well, that, that's actually going to factor into a story we're going to talk about in a little bit too. But hang on, folks, because um, it's you think you've heard the worst being between the twi- uh, pitcher's legs. There is something else you need to know about Sherry before we get into her full DEA background. But I got to ask you: Did you ever put that on your resume? You know, when you were applying, that hey, I made Play of the Week, ESPN. I did not put the Play of the Week, but I did put put that because I thought it was a good thing of customer service, crowd control, like all those cheering. I did a lot of other things. It's all in how you articulate your resume, right? So I didn't mention the play of the week, though in retrospect, that probably was the highlight I should have used. I got hired. It worked out. So <laughs> so where, where'd you go do your master's at? So I went to NAU, which is uh, Northern Arizona University. Here in Phoenix, as a police officer, they offered a cohort. So you could do a uh, a cohort with other police, firefighters, some ASU students, um, and we all kind of came together and did a, a master's program in education and leadership. So, but you were you were on Phoenix PD at the time you're doing your master's then? Yes, I did both at the same. Well, let's talk about getting on to Phoenix PD. Tell us about the application process. You know, what was it like? And what year was this approximately? So I applied in 1995. And um, back then you had to call and they had to mail you an application. This is before the internet. Well, I'm certainly dating myself by telling this. Um, But they had to send you an application and you filled it out by hand and you mailed it back in and then you crossed your fingers and hoped that somebody would call or write you a letter at some point. Um, They did and they offered me a opportunity to test. So we would fly in and then you would test for three or four days and knock out your first series of tests. And then you'd be invited back for the second round if you were successful in the first. So later on, I modeled, I, I used that same model for DEA when I was in charge of hiring to try and get people through quicker. How long did it take you to go through the whole process? Phoenix PD was probably nine months from the time I, I applied till I was hired. Wow, that's a long time. How many did they hire, if you remember? So there were only two Phoenix police officers in my academy class. Um, so they Say were. what? They, there were only two, right? Two? Yep. So we had a combined class of, I think we had 50 guys, but they were all different departments. Phoenix Regional had a um, ran the academy, and it was a, kind of a, a valley-wide, or actually really a statewide academy. How many women? Two. <laughs> so were you both Phoenix PD, or was there no. a... 
my other my other female, she was awesome. She was a, a military girl. She was a badass for sure. She uh, she went to Sholo PD, which is a very small uh, police department in northern Arizona. How, what was it like? Because Steve and I have talked about the sport, and we've talked about it with some of the other uh, women we've had on the podcast. Because I know um, somebody, you know, at the risk of repeating myself for folks who have heard this, but when when I my first academy was 1982, my second one with the state uh, patrol was 1984. And at that time, in 1984, the Highway Patrol was almost 50 years old, and it was only the third female we'd ever hired in almost 50 years. And so, I mean, you know, things have come a long way. What was it like when you first applied? I mean, did you feel like, did, did that matter to you? Or did you really see that, hey, I'm, I'm, it's a very male-dominated, you know, I've got to be different, I've got to work harder. What, what was that impact on you when you joined? So I hate male-dominated because I feel like that we're setting the wrong message. There were just more men than women. They didn't dominate anyone, right? So it's, it was, I, the challenge of it is what excited me. Being one of the few made me more passionate. I worked so hard because I wanted to meet the same standard. In my entire career of law enforcement, no one has ever said to me, Sherry, run halfway up that hill or do half as much as the males that you're standing next to. So I, I really held myself to the standard of success which I felt was a, a single standard for all of us. Uh, so I worked really hard and I was very focused and I, um, you know, you're, you're filled with all this stuff. I'm 22 years old. I, I don't know anything about the world. I am so naive and I've just moved across the country with this dream and not really knowing if I would succeed. And every part of the Academy, especially back then, 1996, I'm going through, there was this fear of failure. If you didn't pass this test, they kicked you out. If they, so there was all of this, you were going to get fired for all of these things. And I was determined, I, I didn't know a soul in Phoenix. There was no way I was going back to Chicago. It's a dry heat here. So as hot as it gets, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. <laughs> it's a dry heat. It's a yeah, dry it's heat. It's like Milwaukee. It's a dry cold. Yeah, now so, we is a, so is an oven. Yes, it is. <laughs> It's a dry it's heat. But it's like a convection oven. So it's yeah. it kind of <laughs> slow cooks you. Um, yeah. Welcome to Phoenix, home of the convection oven. Yeah. Yes. And we cannot we absolutely can, can fry eggs. Um it works better on the hood of the car than it does on the cement, but it is doable on both surfaces. It's doable? I'm going to have to get one of those I've heard about them too, the the street omelets or whatever they call them. Yeah. I'm not sure oh. I've heard somebody talk. Yeah. My kids and I did it last summer just to prove it could be done. All right, all right. <laughs> and they survived. They so, did. <laughs> so you're on Phoenix PD. You get through the academy. It's nine months. Tell us about your training period. You get out. What What was it like training? How long were you in training with the uh, what they you guys would probably call it the same thing in FTO field training officer? What was that like until you were finally out that first night when you're out on your own in a car by yourself? How long did that take? So the Phoenix. Training Academy is awesome. The training that I got there, again, I'm 22 years old. I know nothing. Tactics, I know this is what I want to do. I'm very focused, but I soak it all in. I believe everything they tell me because I've never heard it before. If they tell me to stand this way, I do it. I'm coachable at that point because I'm really wanting to be successful. So when I leave the academy, then we had a three-week uh, post-academy just for Phoenix graduates, and we were with another group. And then I get assigned to my FTO squad, and I get the guy that doesn't talk at all. He is a fantastic officer. I think he's still on. Um, he was 
awesome to learn from and awesome to ride with, but didn't talk to me at all. Like at all. Didn't say a word. I would ask him questions and he would just scowl at me. It was it was <laughs> terrifying. Well, how is that could how is that a training officer? Was, yeah. Tough. He didn't answer your questions. But but I made it because I figured it out. He didn't let yeah. me make mistakes, right? He would stop me before I got hurt. Um but it was probably the best training because I really learned to kind of to be outgoing, to to put it out, to not be afraid to make mistakes. Because that's the biggest part, right, is you're trying to solve problems. Law enforcement is a constant barrage of problem solving. Right. My very first call when I'm on training, and this was just brought up to me the other day by the commander of the drug unit for uh, Phoenix PD, was an accident, a traffic accident, which is my least favorite thing to do. Sorry to state patrol out there who love that stuff. Morgan. Mm. So, um, least favorite thing to do. So, my very first one, I don't know how to write a ticket. You know, I'm, I'm learning all that stuff. And I'm telling the woman who's upset. She ran into a wall. And I'm telling her what I would want to be told. Like, oh, it was an accident. So, I'm finishing. I give her the ticket. And she hugs me. And when she's hugging me, you know, I'm all officer safety, holding on my gun. I'm worried. That, like, they taught me a lot about this in the academy. And now she's hugging me because I've made her feel good about getting a ticket. And I look over, and my training officer is standing there with other training officers like, oh, my God, what is happening? And I have never lived that down. And it just was brought up last week. So that's, I mean, this is a 25-plus year thing. Yeah, very first call. Who brought it up last week? The, the the commander for the drug enforcement unit was my sergeant at the time. This uh -huh. is how, how much we've grown, I guess, how old we are. He's now the commander. So we, we had a meeting last week, and he brought that up and told all of my ASACs here about <laughs> me being hugged. <laughs> and that was not the and last time. I got hugged pretty often. But I, I tried to always give them exceptional service, right? Because being when you encounter law enforcement, that's a high-stress time for everyone. It's usually never the best day of your life. So. No. We don't encounter people when they get a puppy. Nobody says, hey, I got a puppy. Let the police come over and play with the puppy. What, they're calling us on the worst day of their lives or the worst right. events. And so right. I, I tried to, I tried my best to, to make us all survive those. So I did put extra effort and I did spend extra time and so I got hugged a lot, which... Well, this has set a bad precedent for your office, because I can see agents coming in now going, I've had a I bad a day. Hug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless. Get your ass out of my office. I don't want you in here. No, but that, you know what? I, I love that, because it's, you know, as a police officer, no matter what agency, what level, you're a public servant. And you're not there to terrorize the public. You're there to serve the public, which, you know, a lot of people, like, they look at public service as a... Uh, a derogatory term, I guess, would be the nice way to say it. Whereas I think we look at it as a badge of honor because the public is putting their trust in us. So, yeah, you're going to get your, your – uh, I was going to say uh, – I'm not going to say that you get your chops busted because uh, you're you know, a woman and what I was going to say doesn't fit with this. But um, I, but I get it, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're going you're gonna to get your chops busted because that's the camaraderie in law enforcement. I mean, you hear Morgan and I, we pick on each other all the time, but well, if somebody Well, an easy target, though. I got I to gotta lay off because he's such an easy target most of the time. I feel bad sometimes. <laughs> but if somebody else goes to pick on him, I'm going to let him to a degree and then we're going to stop it because that's my <laughs> right. partner, right? That's Absolutely. just the way we are. That's how so. we feel about the FBI. That's how we feel about firefighters. 
We right. like to pick on them. I but don't know. Firefighters, they kind of tick me off because these guys sit and eat 24 hours a day. They sleep. And they everybody loves out. a firefighter. Firefighter shows up, they love them, right? I know. God, I know. God. Hey, you and had we, a you choice. You had a choice. Well, yeah. the show you don't see on TV, it's called Live FD. You ever see a show called Live FD? No, because they're all no. sitting in their easy chairs, eating dinner, watching what's on TV. Yeah. <laughs> Some good uh, cooks there. Really good cooks. And they work out all day. So. Yeah. So now, so this brings this brings up an old story from the seventies when I was a police officer, a city police officer. The the police station was on the second floor of the municipal building, and the fire department was in the basement. And our gym just happened to be over top of the bunk area for the fire department. So you're up there, you know, three a.m. <laughs> when it's a quiet night, you're in there lifting weights and letting them slam to the ground. Boy, we got some uh, lifelong friends there. <laughs> <laughs> We had a charity softball tournament we used to do. It was called Guns and Hoses. So that was uh, that was our little our little fun there. Yeah. yeah. Hey, let, let's get back to your Phoenix PD stuff. What was the first really scary call you remember going on? The one that where you really crapped your pants? Well, I, so for the record, I've never crapped my pants. We'll just put that out there. Um, I just well, you're not under to... oath either. So yes. how, how do we know? Yeah. Well, I can assure you. I promise. Um, but my very first day solo. So my very first day, I'm off FTO, the cord has been cut, and I'm driving my police car all by myself. And it's thrilling. Like, this is it's pretty what, cool. Yes, right? Your very first day. Yeah. And I'm leaving the briefing. So I've loaded up my car. I have everything. And I double-check, triple-check, because all the, all the mistakes I've made now on training, I, I want to make sure I don't make those mistakes now. So I have everything I need. I load up my car. Hot call comes out. Not in my area, but I, the area I have to drive by to get to of a, a shooting in progress. So I'm going, right? So I answer up. I'm, I'm on the way. I'm the first car there. It is, it is a shootout. There are five dead people, and there is carnage and blood and people everywhere. It was, was in a it bar. Was it gang-related or what? It was in a Mexican bar. It was gang-related. It was drug-related. Um, and it was—so now I have victims. I have um, suspects. I have injured people. I have people running everywhere. And I have five people that are—we call it DRT, dead right there, but others also that are shot now. So I have fire. It's my very first day. This is like— a huge scene. And of course, the, the officer that comes to back me up is one of the girls I trained with, who is spectacular, best, uh, best backup to ever have. And the two of I, the two of us, brand new first day, are looking at each other like, oh my God. <laughs> and we just start going. Um, and then other people get there, we, we control the scene. It was fantastic. And I thought to myself, this is going to be every day. This is the best job Ever. It's exciting. I get to help people. I get to chase people. It has, it hits every one of my buttons. This is what I was meant to do. And every day I would come home, honestly, and think to myself, I cannot believe I'm getting paid to do this job. I got to chase people and it was thrilling. And I got to be there when people needed me and run to help people. It was the most thrilling and amazing time of my life. Have you ever heard anybody else use that acronym DRT? I've never heard that. Dead right there. No, I I have. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's a Phoenix thing. I, yeah, no, no, no. I think everybody kind of has their own thing. You know, they, d d there's DOAs, DRTs. You know, um, we had actually we used to have uh, nurses in the ER. They would call them. So we just had a Gomer come in. I'm going a Gomer like Gomer Paul. No, 
Gomer, G-O-M-E-R, get out of my E-R. You know, that's what they would call. (laughs) (laughs) They'd be in there all the time. Hey, well, let's go back to that shooting though real quick. I mean, what was that like? So you're there and, uh, I mean, first calls, you're thinking, I mean, it's like, is this going to get any better? I mean, it's just five people get killed every day in Phoenix. So what was that scene like? I mean, you're working it, but... um, if you're the first one there, your first thought, what's the first thought in your head? My thing is, if there's five dead people, I don't want to be number six. Well, it goes to training, right? So it goes to everything you're trained to do. So I'm going through a checklist of safety and then securing the scene. and Well, safety and then getting my victims out and then securing the scene, getting fire in to help who can, can be there. So it becomes very um, automatic. And I think... In law enforcement, we talk a lot about mental health now that we know. Those are things that we handle trauma, like going to the grocery store. Here's my list. I just go through my list. And I think in studying trauma and in studying police, when we look at those things, if we don't take time to think about what we went through, like those were five dead people. And that part of the story gets skipped over because it was so exciting to me because it was my very first call, which doesn't take away from the victims, right? Those are those are fathers and husbands and mothers and daughters that will never go home because they happen to be in that bar at that day. So those are things you think about later because you don't have time to think about it when you're in the middle of the trauma. You don't have time when you, you're forced to act because I'm saving my life, my partner's life, other people's lives. And then when that's finished, then you have time to go home and process, wow, I just went through something that was a lot, a lot to take in in a short amount of time. And I'm 23 years old. Like this is my my welcome to law enforcement. So learning to deal with those things and and kind of cycling through them every day and, and not holding them in and letting them fester inside of you is something law enforcement is paying more attention to now. But at the oh, time yeah. we didn't we didn't talk about that. Because we would compartmentalize, right? You go right. home and you compartmentalize. My wife worked at the police department, but even then it was hard to talk about it. So there's this great book out there called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, Dr. Kenneth Gilmartin. And I've heard him speak and stuff. And it really talks, one of the artifacts that happens is you get to the point of where you just withdraw and you don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to make decisions. And that's the, unfortunately, a lot of people may not know, but more officers each year commits, more officers die by suicide than they actually die from uh, the line of duty. And that's the, what you're talking about because we never learned how to talk about these big events and how to express it because they would think, ah, you're just a wimp. Just suck it up, you know, part of the job. Right. And I think I, I actually bought that book. I bought 50 copies of it and I give one to all of my new agents. And I had my Nogales office, my Sierra Vista office do a, a book club with me and I had them all read it. And we talked about the book because I need to give them the skills now to survive 20 more years of this. Well, they need to know it's okay to talk about it, and it doesn't in any way take away from your status as an agent, you know, or anything else. Because Steve and I have talked to I mean, you think about the stuff you saw down in Columbia, um, you know, even when I was a detective, but even as a trooper. But, you know, you show up to some of these horrendous wrecks, father, daughter, both killed in a wreck, hit by a cement truck, you know, on the side. And it's like, those are the images you never want to share with anybody, and you feel like, I got to talk to somebody. Right. You know, and it, it does. It, it it takes a toll. It does. I think... When you talk about women in law enforcement, I think that's one of, and you hate to make this a gender issue, but I I found that it was easier for the guys on my squad to talk to me 
because I was more like a sister to them. And so we would debrief calls as a, as a regular thing. And a lot of it is joking around and making fun of it, but a lot of it is, is bigger than that and more important than that. Having 10 minutes to talk about, we just saw this horrific thing and being able to express that and men tend and this is probably, you know, I'm assigning gender roles, which is bad. But at the time, in the 90s, men tended to talk to me more. So I, I actually did a lot more, I don't want to say therapy, but I, I had a very special position on my squad, being the only woman, because I was able to, to Well, you were more empathetic them. and sympathetic, and plus you gave out free hugs. We all know I what did. it is, Sherry. Yeah. <laughs> it was for the hugs, that's why. Yeah. And by the way, if you're buying books, you heard about this book, Manhunters, right? Oh, you know, I bought it. I read it the, cover to cover. Yes. 50, 50 copies goes a long way for us not eating cat food, so just keep that in mind, Sherry. It's, it's a work of fiction. I tell you, that's why it's in the fiction aisle, you know, it, like Walmart. Yeah. It is a wonderfully written book, and I love it. The whole book is a recruitment for DEA because it was. Absolutely. It made DEA, um, well, it tells the truth how great we really are. And it talks really nice about CNP and how we build partnerships. And that's so true. Then CMP and now. is code for Colombian National Police. Sorry, so, thank you. So you guys, yes. you feds, I gotta just break you of this habit of talking in acronyms <laughs> and codes. It's never going to happen. <laughs> never going to happen. <laughs> hey, but 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 you know, you worked through some assignments because one of the things you started getting into um, that I'm very interested in is uh, while you were at Phoenix PD, you you got to work on the Hell's Angels. I did. I did. How did that come about? So after I did a couple years in patrol, I became an FTO. So I was training new officers. Field which was, training officer. Right. Thank you. I just did it. You just said it, and I did it again. Hey, Sax, we can't train you, Sax, you feds. I'm telling you. It's okay, Sherry. He's just jealous of us. <laughs> he is. He is. <laughs> Um, after I, I was at FTO, I became a detective and I went to organized crime and I did vice enforcement. So I did prime, I undercover every day, which was an awesome job. Very so different. What kind of undercover stuff? Mostly prostitution. Um, but I Get did. Between those uh, ball players' legs again, huh? Jeez. I had some experience in that. So I, yes, so they put me <laughs> on the corner. Um, but you learn a lot about people and those are still great cases. And it was a fun and very exciting uh, time, for sure. Well, let me tell you, one of the episodes we did is with Dave Reichert, uh, the detective who handled the Green River Killer case. And, you know, but but you mentioned something, though, too. People kind of joke about it, but prostitutes, you know, they some people say, well, they're sex workers. Well, you know, sex workers, I look at, like, strip clubs or something like that. But I, when I look at the people who, from an, a social standpoint, prostitutes, the people who actually are working the street and prostituting themselves out for money, they tend to be the targets of, of these violent assaults, these serial killers and stuff, and people— tend to marginalize them. And what I really think like you're doing too is the problem is you have to work the supply and demand side, right? But it's it's going after the guys who are perpetu- who are causing this to happen. I was just going to say there's, there's so many more parts to that involving human yeah. trafficking and the, the horrendous uh, things that go on inside of that crime itself that people, it's not just as simple as people want to make it. No, and there was, you know, part of the the prostitution piece was massage parlors and right. sex clubs and strip clubs. So we had, a, you know, a wide array of, of violations, and we were looking at city code violations. The Johns, or the, the men that are involved in picking up the, the prostitutes, 
in the city of Phoenix, they got a 15-day sentence. So that was pretty significant for a misdemeanor offense. And they also, at the time, uh, Sheriff Arpaio was putting them on film. So you could actually get on TV. The name and shame thing? Yeah. Yeah, and see who was who was picking up prostitutes in your area. So it is it is a a very complicated problem, but certainly something that we, you know, it it is a has a violence thread. It has a um, there's really a lot of victims associated with sex trafficking and sex crimes. Right, it's so much more than just consensual sex. That's not at all what it's about. Yeah. No. Right. And some and some women are so trapped. I mean, they feel like that that's their only way out is to is to uh, you know engage in uh, sex on the street, you know, for money. Right. And most of that is narcotics re- related. If we're being honest, um, it, it was seen the worst of the using population and the desperation of of people and and people that at one point had families and houses and jobs and, and lost they, everything. Yes, they paid the price over and over and over again. I met one prostitute that had on her on the back of her shoulder she had thirteen names going down her shoulder, and I asked her when I was booking her. What, what are these names? And she said, those are all my kids. And she was only 30 years old. She had had 13 children, and she had not been able to keep a single one of them. Oh, my gosh. Well, well you certainly... <laughs> hard to be funny about anything like that. I mean, that's just... No, that's, that's you know, pathetic. That's, but, but, you know, I feel it's one of those things, though, too, but at, at some point you kind of... I, I look at the institutions of society and go, you know... How do we break this cycle? You know, and that, that's a long, complicated issue we're not going to be able to get into here. But, you know, but but people think work and vice is just popping out and busting people. And it's like you're just there to make arrests. And it's like, no, when you really start targeting some of these levers that people are using to keep women victimized and stuff like that, that's what you're going after as well, too. How long did you how long did you work the street? How long did you work undercover before you got into the Hells Angels? So I probably did a solid year. And prior to that, I had done a lot of temporary assignments, so I knew. Um, so I'd, I had a lot of experience by the time I actually went full time. But what was your street we- name? <laughs> well, I had Madison Fisher was my name. Well, uh, that's that's going to play into something else later. So that's the name you used on the street, right? Right, because they were my dogs' names. So I one of the dogs was named Madison, and my middle name was Sydney, which was another dog, and I always called Sydney Sydney Fish. So I used Fisher. So yeah, because I figured if somebody called my dog's names, I would look, right? One of the first rules of working undercover, don't use a name you don't recognize. When somebody right. says, hey, Bill, and you don't, you don't respond to your own name. Madison Fisher, that, that is going to, folks, put that in your ear. That's going to oh, come boy. back to haunt Sherry in a minute. <laughs> you know, we've, 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 like you said, you've, you've, you've self-inflicted. You've told us a lot of this stuff. We're going to use it. <laughs> but get, so get into the Hells Angels now. How did this case come about, uh, and how did you end up being pulled into it? So the beauty of being a female in law enforcement is when there's not very many of us there, you have to pick from what you have. So they, they picked me to be part of the investigation. And I had done a lot of other work with organized crime. So we had some good like Russian mafia cases that I worked undercover on. And um, there were a few others and some, some sex trafficking, some, you know, child predators, I guess. Um, so I, I had a, pr- a pretty good reputation. So they asked me to, to join on this case. And it was a case that was already in progress. It was being run by the, the ATF was the lead agency, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. 
There you go. Yeah. You can be trained. Catching up. You forgot explosives, though. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, BATFA. At at the time, I don't think they were explosives yet. Just ATF. Yeah. After the fire. Yes. After the Um, fact. Or adopt that. Mm -hmm. They added that later. (laughs) So... uh, So um, my partner was a Phoenix detective with me, and he was an amazing detective. He later went on to do really great things after the case as well. Um, And they just kind of let me hang out with them. It kind of legitimized their story, and it helped them, you know, be able to have real lives outside of um, their Hells Angels lives because there were certain postures that they were um, expected to have, I guess. So if having a girlfriend or having a property of, which I was not very proud of that tag, by the way, they bought me a shirt saying property of just in case you needed to know that I still have it. I think Uh, I won't be wearing it ever, but uh, (laughs) my husband would like it if I wore it. No, Um, (laughs) I'm ready to give out free hugs. Just go someplace and give out free hugs. See, there it is. Um, so I, I, uh, I had this opportunity to be part of this amazing case. And, and like I said, it was already in progress. So I got to learn everything that they had done. And I, I was really like doe-eyed and in wonderment because I got to see things that I would have never been able to see. I got to Were be in Were they up on places. like wiretaps and, and things like that? Yeah, they had a, the full investigation was going by the time I got there. So I got to go to the parties and I got to go, um, like Sonny Barker kissed me and like, so tell people really quick, we don't want to devolve too much story, but Sonny Barker is a very famous name in angels, uh, uh, hell's angels history. So real quickly, who is Sonny Barker? So at the time he was the head, the founding member, and he had written some books and done some copywriting, very smart man. He had He'd actually um, moved out from Oakland, right? To Phoenix, if I yes. remember right. Yes. Yeah. And he had done a lot to kind of legitimize, um, you know, organized crime. So he, he was famous at the time. Uh, he would come to some of these parties. Uh, it was, it was fascinating to meet these people. It was fascinating to be part of this, this world. And being a woman, again, I would hang out with the girlfriends and the other property ofs, and they would tell me things because it's just girls talking, not necessarily, uh, that I'm asking questions about Hell's Angels, they just mention things about their boyfriends or about their husbands or whoever. So I, I got really great intel. Were you really ever wired intel. up? Were you oh. ever wired up with recording when you went in? Sure. It was safer to wire me up because nobody was really allowed to touch me unless my boyfriend gave them permission. So that's, right. they were very respectful of the relationship. And so I would always be the wire person. Wow. That's, that's that's a little bit hard to believe that there's any respect at all in there for women when you hear, I mean, just the idea that you're the, somebody's property, you know, being the well, dad. Well, I think it's right. more about the respect for the guy that you're his property as opposed to respecting you because you're the property of. It's like, I don't want to diss him, you know. Yeah. But if I have his permission, I can search you. I mean, I could strip you naked and search you for a wire as long as the uh, the gang member gave me permission. Well, exactly. I mean, as violent as these guys are and and overbearing, I guess, would be a nice way to, to put their attitudes. You would think that, you know, there's absolutely no respect for females whatsoever. So even though you do belong to one person, well, you, it's part of the club. You you belong to the club. 
Well, and I had to sh- had to have this air of obedience all the time, where which was difficult as being a. <laughs> Wait a minute! I'm kind of liking this part. Go ahead with this. <laughs> yes, it won't work at home. I promise. Um, but where I would have to ask permission, can I do this? I would ask somebody, can I buy drugs from you? And then before I could take them, hold on, let me check with my boyfriend and see if I can take mm-hmm. these. Um, can I order a drink? Let me check with my boyfriend before I drink this drink. So it was this um, constant submissiveness, which was tough. But they were respectful because the men who were the undercovers had gained that respect already. So they, when I walked in, they were very good detectives. They were very good undercovers. So they already had this um, reputation, and I just had to legitimize their what they already built. So, and one of the famous names, too, from the ATF side, I believe, was involved in this case, too, right? He's kind of a legend in ATF. It was Jay Dobbins, right? Sure, yes. Yes, I worked with him. Um, we had a lot of fun, uh, a lot of crazy times. He taught me a lot. Well, we got some good stories about what Lou Velozzi, another ATF guy, did to Jay in one of the strip clubs. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It, it just, long story short, it, Jay had paid the stripper to come over and, and mess with Lou because he's like the new guy. And Lou said, hey, I'll give you whatever he gave you plus another 30 bucks. He likes it rough. So she went back over and slapped him with her hand and hit him with the ring, <laughs> cut his eye open, and they had to go into the uh, restroom and have the ATF medic stitch Jay up. <laughs> <laughs> you get, folks, you have to listen to that episode with Lou Velosi. I mean, it's a it's a killer episode. Oh, so, it's uh, outstanding. <clears throat> but but that's but you know but the thing is too is you have to be careful too because you've got to be in character the entire time. You get out of character and somebody starts sniffing a rat, right? Right. And so having a story, but not necessarily telling your story. You just have to have it right in your own head so that you're you're playing that role, and you have to allow yourself like. There, there were, and this is going to sound conflicted, but there were really great people that we met that were bad guys. They have good qualities. Not everybody is bad in every part of their life. So if you talk to them about, you know, parents or we would go to funerals or weddings, like there were great moments where you got to know these people, which makes it hard as an undercover because you have to know right and wrong in your head the whole time. And you have to allow yourself to kind of dip your toe in the the tainted water so that you can be genuine and authentic with these people. And then, but keep your head straight so that you know at the end, you're going to have to put that person in cuffs and they're going to feel betrayed because of your relationship with them. So there's that's a lot to struggle with while you're going through, especially a long-term undercover case. You know, you have said the same thing we've heard from Dominic Polifrone. He was ATF work, the Iceman case. We talked to Lou Veloze. You know, we've talked to several people. That's the thing. You know, the one thing we found from a lot of these folks that worked undercover, it's not that you became friends with them, but that at the point, though, it, it became you, you worked the case. You still had a responsibility to carry out and make an arrest, but you knew that you were betraying them. You know, it was a betrayal of trust, but it was it was necessary in order to achieve the objective of the investigation, which is make the case, get the goods, you know, and, uh, to, you know, bring people to justice. I actually got hired by DEA while I was doing the deep cover for for the Hells Angels case. So I had to talk myself out of the case so I could go to the academy. And I went to a bar. We went to a, a 
and I met with some of these people and I, I told them a story about my mom being sick and I was going to go to Chicago and take care of her. And the sympathy that I got from these people who were hardcore criminals, bad guys, was more than I would have gotten from my friends if I said, I'm going to go to Chicago and take care of my mom. So it's those pieces, you can't take away that, that human part of people were, were complicated, but they're still doing evil deeds and they're still preying on innocent people. And that's what you have to keep in your head so that you, you don't make the mistake. Yeah, you can't you can't buy in and, be, and become the character you're playing. You still have to remember at the end of the day, you're still law enforcement. You're still DEA. Well, how the hell did you get recruited into DEA while you're in the middle? Uh, I, I would think that if anything, with the excitement you're having, you would have gone to ATF. I, you know, I I I thought about it, but DEA was my first love. DEA was my first bite of the apple. Right when he let me put on that raid jacket, I was I was hooked. There was nothing that was like George Costanza. Me. I was ensconced in velvet. You know, just <laughs> <laughs> she's being loyal. That's what she's being. Yes, here. I, I mean that was my heart and that was my goal. So when I joined the police department, I did everything then that he told me to do. And by the time I get to well, in 1998, when I have three years on the job, I apply to DEA. And you had your master's degree by this time, right? Yes. Or so was you're in working full time, Phoenix PD, going to college. Working undercover, um, working Hell's Angels, and now working you're off playing. Duty. I mean, yes, it yeah. was I had four dogs. Yeah, it was a good time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't sleep much, but I still don't sleep much. So, um, so here, I, I, but I was trying to accomplish all these things before, so that I was, I was. Um, attractive to DEA because I, I wanted it so bad. So I applied early. It took three years and four months for them to hire me. So by the time I got hired, it was just a bad time. I later went on to be the hiring chief. I fixed that. But at the time, it was three years and four months was my process. Oh, my gosh. They lost, yeah. <laughs> they lost my stuff three times. I had to refill out. Again, this is before internet, so I have to refill everything out by hand. Um, 9-11 had happened during that time as well. So there were a lot of big events that that caused hiring freezes and changes in hiring in addition to some paperwork issues. So by the time they hire me, it's um, it's the middle of this case. And the timing was bad, but I couldn't. I couldn't not walk through that door when it was open. Wow. It, you know, it, it took me two years to get on DEA, and I thought that was outrageous. That's, you've got the record. <laughs> well, that, yes. that include him driving to D.C. on his own time, knocking yes. on the recruiter's door, going, what the hell's going on here, you boys? That's right. Yes. I got their well, attention. And my, and my recruiter still works here today. He's one of my GSs. He's fantastic. Oh, that's okay. cool. You said it, another acronym. Tell everybody what a GS oh, is. Oh, GS is a group supervisor. So he is a leader in DEA. He's spectacular, and he made a very good hire. I tell him all the time. So, <laughs> And that was you. <laughs> yes, that was me. <laughs> and now you're his boss. Well, yes, I guess. And now we he has together. to say good yeah. things about you. Yeah. He does. Oh, he come does. on. And every, yeah. time, every time I ask him, he says good things. It's funny. It's weird like that. <laughs> it's yeah. weird like that. When you're the boss, everybody says nice things about you. Well, yeah, There's not a, a lot of negative... That's a smart young man. Don't piss off the boss. <laughs> I know. That's right. <laughs> so, so you have to extricate yourself out. How close was the case to being done when you had to pull out and go to the DEA Academy? How much longer did it run? So it ran at least another nine months. And I know that because when I came back out of the DEA Academy, I tried to get back in. Um, they had asked me 
and by then I had been replaced with a new girlfriend. So my heart was a little broken that they didn't, that my boyfriend was not faithful to me. I know. Oh my God. I tell you. Um, so I had been replaced and so I wasn't able to come back in, but DEA also had different rules and it, I would not have been able to do as much as I did as a detective. Well, the other thing too is, uh, ATF was leading that investigation, right? So were there, were there other DEA people already involved in it or would you have been the first one? Yes. No, I, I actually, when I got assigned to a group out of the academy here, I was in the group that was w- running that case. So uh, we, Big cases like that, we try to make it, um, we do our best in law enforcement to make it a team effort because there are, we all bring something to the table. And so well, DEA was Bikers got weapons, so you've got, you know, the ATS got expertise, obviously, in that. You've got the expertise on the dope side. And um, so, yeah, everybody's got to work together to make the case. Yeah, we had DPS, we had Scottsdale PD. So it was, it was a great uh, effort from a lot of local police departments. I think Mesa PD was on it for sure. They were because the clubhouse was there. Uh, they were... It, it was a great, it was a great effort. It was a great case. I learned tons. And that was called Operation Black Biscuit, right? It was, yes. Yeah, that was a 21-month, 21-month infiltration into the Hells Angels. I mean, that that's a lot of dedication of keeping up a legend, keeping your cover, you know, logging evidence. People, It's not just like, hey, I'll be a biker for eight hours. It's like, well, I'll be a biker for eight hours. And then I spend another eight hours doing paperwork and logging evidence, you know, and writing reports and stuff. Right. So that was a it was a hectic time. And because it was deep cover, we, like the expense of that, of having a, a house, having like all of these other things that, you know, cost, that's a, a huge cost to the government. So. It was, uh, you know, well worth it. It was something that needed to be done. It was legendary for sure. Uh, it was awesome to be part of it. But it was it was a lot. But there's an interesting outcome to this story a little bit, too, because, I mean, like I said, it worked. And a part of this took place because um, uh, there was a riot between the Hells Angels and their their stated enemy, right? The uh, the uh, uh, outlaw Mongols uh, motor gang, right? So this started at Harrah's, I believe, at a casino, Um but why – so get into the part of why they had to shut the operation down because you actually had some undercovers at risk, right? Yes. Yeah, so I was already gone out of that by then. But when right. things started to go bad, um, you know, we're always looking for the safety of, of everyone, but certainly our undercovers, that's a, that's a big deal. So there were a, a series of events that made, made the agents that were involved um, – appear at risk. And so they, they did terminate the investigation and move forward with the, with the takedown. But they faked it by faking the death of a Mongol, right? Isn't that something Jay and some of the others were involved in? Yes. So they had done that prior to, prior to me getting in, but I was part of like the aftermath of that, which was incredible. And I actually used that in my cases later as a DEA agent because it was such an effective tool. Uh, and when you think about faking a death, you know, how do you, because that person that you've killed can no longer be around. So that that's tricky. And people, yeah, it kind of ruins the whole point of being dead if you're still yes, alive, right? But people don't necessarily want to act dead, right? They, they still want to go to the grocery store and eat right. and have girlfriends and call their moms. So those are, those are really big challenges to overcome when you're faking a death. Uh, in in the ATF case, I paid really close attention. I watched everything they did, and I tried to imitate that later on in a case that I was doing. 
But but if I were, you know, like I say, we're doing our research, but part of the reason they faked this Mongol death was so that Jay and, and the others, I think they were called Solo Angelus, they were able to establish credibility, right, with yes. the Hell's Angels chapter. And they were not full members, but they were like, what, associate members, or they were an associated to the gang? So they have all different levels of, they have hangarounds, they have prospects, they have all different levels. We weren't trying to get into Hell's Angels. We were just allowed to occupy the state and hang out with them because we had gotten their their respect. We were another 1% club and we were representing ourselves as that club. But in order to, at the time, Hells Angels was kind of running all the other 1% clubs out of, out of the area and they were taking over Arizona. So if there was a 1% gang here, they were forced to either leave or, or patch over to HA. So, which most most of them have loyalty to their initial 1% gang. We were able to come in because we were basing ourselves out of Tijuana and coming in as um, partners, basically. We weren't trying to take them over. We were just saying, let us go to your parties. Um, and because we had done them this favor, they held us in high regard and let us hang around. So we couldn't go to like some of their meetings, but we could go to others. We could go to their Anything that was open, more social, a, yeah, like to things. a select few. So I saw some awesome things at some of those clubhouses, um, but we did, we weren't able to go to some of their other events, obviously for only patched members. So real quickly, let the folks know what is a one percent gang and what does it mean to be patched. So uh, a one percent gang is the the gangs that we're typically looking at. That it's only one percent of the population. They are one percent of all of the bad guys in the world would make it to the 1% club. They have to commit a felony to be part of, to show allegiance to their gang and to be part of the organization. The felony piece, though it's been myth and folklore that you have to do it, it's pretty accurate. However, they do make exceptions. um, And the felony is uh, on a sliding scale, I guess you would say, because there's a degree of felonies. So they, they do let people in that makes sense for them. To, to let in. So, and what was your other so question? So, like, if you're, a, if you're a felony driving while suspended, you're not really high on the list yes, of getting into a motorcycle that, game. That might not, that might not show allegiance <laughs> to your club. And the 1% is supposed to be to um, elevate the status of your, of your gang, right? To do something in furtherance of Hell's Angels, not necessarily, you know, if you just ag assault somebody on their way home, that, that doesn't count. I was going to say, the other part of the question was what it means to be patched. Oh, patch. So to to be a patched member, they have to prove themselves. That is a long process where they have to prospect. There's um, some financial piece where they have to put in to get out. And then once they're patched and they've proven themselves, they're able to wear the patches on their their motorcycle cuts and display those in public. Until they are fully patched, they sh- they're not allowed to to wear any kind of anything that associates them with Hell's Angels. So there's a full blown initiation process that everyone goes through, right? Correct. Yep. And uh, you hear you hear the stories. I, a lot of it's um, not normal behavior as as what we would think is normal behavior. I guess not a club I would join probably. Probably not. Yeah, it's very similar when, like I said, we we're talking to Dominic Polifron. He actually worked across the five major crime families, you know, with made people. And it's amazing, but it's similar traditions, even though you've got the organized crime, you know, the Italian uh, uh, La Cosa Nostra, you know, this thing of ours, you know, and you've got the Hells Angels. It, 
inexplicably and, and really and amazingly, they almost operate the same way in terms of their hierarchy, how they what it takes to get into the club, you know, or into the organization. So, I mean, it's like the same thing over and over. It's just a different version. You know, Hell's Angels is just a different version of, uh, you know, the mafia. Right. And they're so organized. And it it's really all organized crime is kind of a family. And it's funny that they they work so hard to build up this love and trust between them like a family would. And and kind of similar to law enforcement, though we're doing good deeds and not bad deeds. All right. Well, let's 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 talk about the culmination of this cuz I, I want to get into a <laughs> I've been waiting to get to this story, but I don't want to rush this part. But look, the operation culminated, uh, as our research shows, on July 8th, 2003, with the arrests of 52 people. 16 Hells Angel members and associates were indicted on charges, including RICO, which is a Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organization Act, violations, murder, and drug trafficking, over 500 illegal weapons, including silencers, pipe bombs, sawed-off shotguns, and machine guns, along with ammunition, 50000 in cash, and drugs were seized. And the Skull Valley chapter disbanded as a result of the investigation. Go figure, right? No, nobody left to join the party. Very successful. Awesome, right? Absolutely. That was cool. Absolutely. Oh, that, that, I mean, but, but you know, but th- th- that's the nice thing about that, though, is that it's just you feel when, when you do cases like that, you feel really like you've made an impact in the community. It's not like uh, I, I stopped a guy on the interstate and he had, you know, six ounces of, of grass in his car. It's like, uh, OK, you know, as opposed to you've just brought down an entire chapter of the Hells Angels. And it changes the way they do business going forward. Right. Because. The Hells Angels didn't go away. They didn't say, oh, the police got us. We're just going to stop doing everything bad. We're going to start going to church. And we're going to, you know, start volunteering at our local homeless shelter. That that doesn't happen. So the truth is they they continue on, but now they change, right? Because we have violated them, they perceive that as a violation. Now they change their course of business. Do they stop doing illegal deeds? No. But it makes it a better challenge for us as we move forward because makes investigating them tougher. You have to come up with new tactics to counter the tactics they put in place. You know, this is very much cat and mouse all over again. Right. But it does stall them. It does change some of their illegal behavior. And at least for a while, they are safer. They are less violent because they're afraid because they know we're watching. And if the guys that didn't get picked up, we, we still saw them. We still know that they exist. So those guys are uh, kind of, they put themselves on probation and they go, they go kind of on the right side of the law for as long as they can because they, they know that they're targets. Right. So they learn from their mistakes too. Oh, of course they do. Yes. So do we. True. True. And look, there's mistakes made in every uh, every investigation. But so so this thing wraps up. But you're at, you go to DEA. You finally make it to the academy. What was the academy like for you? How many people were in your class? How many women? Um, how many men? You know. So I had fifty people in my class. Four. That's females. what you started off with. How many did yes. you end up with? We ended up graduating forty four. Okay, all, not bad. And all four females graduated. So okay. Um, so we doubled from Phoenix PD. That was <laughs> 100% improvement if you're keeping score, yes. you know, with metrics. Yes. yes. Um, so my first day of the Academy, and up until that point in my life, I had loved every DEA agent I'd ever met. I, because it's a special breed of people. And then I got to my first day of Quantico, and wow, I didn't like one single agent that I saw. <laughs> How come? Well, they didn't they want can, your hugs? You couldn't no, hug No, they them? did not. There was no hugging. Um, 
because they're also playing a role, right? And they yeah. their role is now to train us. And and you think of it from DEA's po- point of view. While I had a lot of experience and I was bringing uh, a lot to offer, they don't hire. They want no, you to learn their way. Absolutely. And they're also hiring somebody who's twenty three and has never been in law enforcement, and somebody who's thirty seven and has been in border patrol for you know the better part of a decade or somebody who's an old fart that's been on where where is it bluefield bluemont blue mound west virginia that's blow me is what it is you know (laughs) or bite me i guess i should say bite Bite, me bite me west virginia (laughs) (laughs) but and we all have to be trained the same way so some of it is like i was trained in my phoenix police academy a weaver shooting then i get to dea academy and we're learning isosceles so it's a so i have to unlearn so let's tell people the weaver, because I know what you're talking about, like the modified weaver stance. So when it's easier to start, let's talk about isosceles, because you're really talking a triangle, both hands directly in front of you, forming a triangle, like your chest is, you know, one leg of it, and each arm is another. But the weaver was more uh, like your, if you were shooting right-handed, uh, you're left-handed, right? So if you're shooting left-handed, your right hand is down a little bit, you kind of turn sideways, right? And you're shooting, both arms aren't extended out. One arm is down, like your right arm is cocked a little bit, and the left arm is holding the pistol. Sure. So Weaver was thought at the time in the 90s to be the safer method because it was a bladed stance. And if you did get shot while you were trying to defend your life, you had less of a chance to hit something vital. Right. So, but studies have shown, and and obviously with uh, some of the wars and some of the military actions, we learned a lot about combat. We learned a lot about shooting and surviving, you know, combat injuries. So the Weaver stance was adopted because it was a better platform, a better shooting platform, and we were more accurate in an in isosceles. I'm sorry, isosceles. The Weaver kind of fell by the wayside and we upgraded. But the other thing you mentioned, though, too, is as more police departments, you know, early on, a lot of officers didn't have body armor, and the ones that had was rough. So the other reason for the uh, isosceles was you then had the full coverage of your body armor from the front, you know, most likely with the plate. Um, One of the guys I went to actually a DEA school with, I remember uh, um, uh, just, it was, it was, uh, it just, it just pisses me off anyway, but he was, he had gone through a two-week training course with me. They were kicking in a door, Topeka PD, and um, he was turned. The guy fired a shot through the door, and it went under his armpit, above his vest, and that's what killed him. Yeah. What a downer. I mean, but— You know, you, you prepare as much as you can, but when, it, when it's your day to die, there's not much you can do yeah. about it. Oh, it's Tony Patterson. I just I remember going through that course, with him. but that, that's one of the things I learned, too, is that, you know, you'd want to take advantage of your body armor, too, and that's the isosceles really helps you do that as well, too. How good but of if, a shot were you? So when you came been, to the, <laughs> well, if you've been shooting Weaver for seven years and then all of a sudden you're now doing something else, it it was tough. But again, I tried to pay attention to everything they said because I was afraid. I was an okay shot. I always qualified. When I left DEA, I was a really good shot because I I listened to everything that they said. Um, I didn't have any ego about shooting, so I I was very open to coaching again. The, the grip on the gun I found was helpful because the weaver was more of a one-handed grip with one yeah. hand being support. And now I had a two-handed grip, which was hard for me to switch to. But once I got it, 
I was like, wow, why wasn't I doing this before? Because I have so much more control over the, the weapon. And it's almost almost that isometric, too, where you're pushing with one hand, pulling with the other, and you're locking it in and that thing. And the other thing, too, it's muscle memory. When you bring up and you're pointing out there, it's less about sighting down the weapon and more using your muscle memory, you know, to bring bring it where it needs to be. Exactly. And at the time, when I went through the academy, we shot from the 50-yard line, so which is an outrageous distance compared to your police department. The 25 to me at my police department seemed like it was a far shot. Then when you're <laughs> shooting from the 50, you, you don't even know if you hit until you get up closer. Um, that, But it made you such a, a better marksman because you were trying so hard to hit this little tiny target. And then, of course, you know how much I like the cold weather. I'm going through Quantico in the wintertime in the snow. There are three blizzards while I'm there. The academy gets shut down. <laughs> oh, yeah. All I want to know is, did you have a shovel in your shower? I did not this time. <laughs> I did not. I was thinking to myself, like, what the hell did I do? Because I was running through snow. I left Phoenix well, you, you, for this. You must have been such a goody two-shoes in the academy. Did you ever have to write any memos? Oh, goodness. I wrote memos for everything. <laughs> What what did Miss Goody Tushes, Miss Coachable, Miss I give you a um, hug if you ask me do? Oh, I looked at somebody wrong one time. I did shoot an instructor in the head one time, but not on purpose. He was just falling down while I You shot, shot him in the head with what? Some munition, obviously, which leaves a mark. <laughs> Especially in the head. <laughs> and he didn't have any hair, so it was hey, worse. Whoa, 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 be careful now. Some of us yes, some of us remember, resemble that remark. Yeah, only one of us on this podcast yeah. does. That's um, why this is audio, you, not video. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. How the hell did you shoot him in the head? What were you shooting? Was, what were you aiming at? In my defense, he had just shot another agent. So I was defending our lives and trying to get my agent out, but he apparently was going down. He, he fell a little faster, I think, than I thought he was going to. Anyway, we, we fixed that with a memo. So I, I don't... <laughs> I don't do that again. Dear, dear instructor, nobody was more surprised than me when the instructor decided to, you know, throw himself in front of my simunition. With his hand. Well, and, and the, pro the problem was I didn't, I shot him twice. So it wasn't like it was one shot that I, it was two. That's just being thorough. I'm sorry. That's just being thorough. Well, that teach you double tap. Right. And it was a high stress. Right. That was the double tap. I'll go with that one. Double it was tap. high. <laughs> so, yeah. And at the time we were, we were learning the snake, which is our, was our tactical uh, operational entry method. We no longer teach the snake. We've moved on to different tactics, but that was well, also different. We moved different. on to the shuffle or the hand jive or what? Is this, a, is this like it, a 70s dance? It's always changing. <laughs> we try and come up with catchy names because otherwise we forget it. So the snake was not our our at the time that's what we were learning, but it was not our best tactic. We've changed now to upgrade our tactics. So hopefully you've upgraded your marketing of the tactics too. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are squared away now. I would say the academy is tough because it has to be because we want to weed people out who don't who should not be in this job and not because it's mean, but because it saves their lives. If you aren't destined for a career in law enforcement, you have to be self-aware enough to learn that and make a decision. Right. So go, going to the academy, we, we always lose people. There's been one class that has graduated all of their people. Uh, they graduated 51 out of 51, and that was a, a class that I hired. I'll take credit for that. Um, but for the most part, we, we it's a natural, you know, kind of a shuffling process. 
It is. There, you know, when I went through the, uh, you, you know, when a new class comes in and there's a senior class already in in, in residence, you have two of the two of the cadets from the senior class come in to address the new class coming. Do you, do you remember still doing that? Yes, of course. So I was uh, I was the second oldest guy in my class back in 1987. And the oldest guy, who was just another year older than me, we were selected to be the two guys to go in and address the new class. You know, and you just, I mean, you go in to be encouraging, but you just tell them, look, you're, back then it was a 13-week academy. And I said, you can do anything for 13 weeks. Just do everything they tell you to do. Don't give anybody any grief. You know, once you get your badge and creds, you can tell them to kiss your rear end. You know, but it's pretty simple. And I said, what questions do you have? And the first question was this lady in the front row, and she said, how serious are they about passing the PT test? And I said, <laughs> if you have to ask that, don't unpack your bag. And you know what? Within two days, she was gone because the next day they took their first test and she didn't make it. Yeah. So it's, but it's for the right reasons. You, you, you're not coming in. You're fighting crime. Well, and fighting crime do, do you is really, you don't do that behind the desk. You get out in the street and sometimes you have to physically fight. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing is, too, is do you really want everybody you hire to make it through. I mean, part of this is it's you, you try and weed out enough of that through the hiring process, the background and everything, but there are some people, everything just factors in, but then you know what? They get in there and they go, uh, is not for me or I can't take it, or they just don't perform. And quite frankly, as much as you like those people, it's, you know, we had, when we went through, actually it was pretty interesting when I went through as a trooper, 2000 people applied. They only hired 16 of us. Now all 16 of us made it through the academy, but only 15 of us made it to our probation. You know, so one of them, very last day, they said, you're just not cutting it, you know, and and they cut him loose. And, you know, that's, you, you don't want, it's the old joke, what do you call the guy that graduated at his, the bottom of his uh, class in medical school? You still call him doctor. I don't know if I want the guy at the bottom of his class working on me, you know? <laughs> right. Right. That was, well, one other question. What other memos did you write? I mean, it sounds like there's oh, more than goodness. one. So tactics were always a good one. I think I, I was not professional one time. I might have said yeah instead of yes. I'm pretty sure I wrote that memo. Oh, did, you, did you have to write a memo for accidentally hugging somebody? I didn't hug anyone in that academy. I did. They were not huggable. There was nothing that wanted. The end. Once I had my badge, all, I hugged all them all. All I can see is you here with that Dr. Evil thing. You know, Austin Powers is like, come here. You know, come <laughs> here. Let me give you a hug. I shot you in the head. It's okay. I'm not going to write a memo. <laughs> what was your class number? We were 150. 150. What was yours, Steve? 53. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think Javier was like 17. Wow. So, wow. yeah. God, that's a lot of classes. Well, they're uh, they're way up at the 200s now, right? They are. They're 229, I think 230 right now. Yeah. But it's amazing your your first day you you stand in front of the class and you wear a suit and you have to tell everybody who you are and what your experience is. And I remember sitting there thinking and as I'm listening to my classmates, we hire really well. I had this diverse class of experience and age and um, life skills. I, I was so impressed, and I thought, wow, I don't know if I'm good enough to get through this. I don't know if I'm good enough to if I belong here, because I didn't feel as confident as I was trying to pretend I was. Um, did, you, did, you have, did you feel like you had imposter syndrome? Yes, I did. 
like and when I went and talked to the the class below me, my advice to them was you belong here. So yeah. you were hired. If you decide that you're not going to make it or you don't make it, there's something better for you. There's another door. There's something better for you out there. But Try if the you, FBI. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the FBI. I, love I know, but it is, it is a state law in Virginia that we bag on every agency. The old joke is, what, is, you know, what do agents at, at DEA and FBI all have in common? They both applied for DEA. Yes. You know? Unless you, Ooh, unless you ask an FBI agent, they'll say, you, you applied for the D- FBI, didn't you? Didn't you? <laughs> Funny how that works. Back to our regularly scheduled, you know, um, you know, chop busting. So, uh, but so you, so you missed, I, I thought you just see, I'm thinking of you going, you're, you're such the rule follower. How did you end up writing all these memos? I'm surprised you made it out of the academy. Did so, you have a time where you thought I'm not making it out of here? Oh, of course. But here's the truth. I'm not really so much of a rule follower. Um, I actually have to look up the rules sometimes. I always say there's a difference between the right thing and the correct thing. And if I'm always doing the right thing, I never got to look and see what the correct thing is. Um, Unless it's policy, then I got to, like, I walk that back sometimes. (laughs) But my husband looks up all the policies for me. I call him and say, hey, this is what I just did. And he's like, well... All right, so this is what what you violated, <laughs> and then I go back. So your husband's to DEA it. too. He is, yes, yep. Uh, so you outrank him, don't you? Quite a bit at home and on the job. <laughs> oh, yes. oh. Yep. but it sounds to me like he has you writing memos but, uh, when you violate policy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would dare him to tell me to try. <laughs> <laughs> but you have so much experience already. <laughs> I, I do have. I do have a lot of memos. We all make mistakes, and that's part of training: is you have to learn. Absolutely. From them. And if you're not uncomfortable... Just don't make the same mistake twice. Twi- it's exactly. Yep. If you're not uncomfortable, then you're not learning. So yeah. the whole idea, the experience of the academy is to make you as uncomfortable as they can possibly make you from the minute you walk in until you leave. I got in trouble for not having my shoes tied, for not having my pants blouse, like every... Uh, for not turning down my bed. I don't even know what that means. Like I Hey, look, when I went through basic training, I was going into ROTC, so we all went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, July of ni- June and July of 1979. Not you, you want to talk, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Drill sergeants are not your friends. They might be after you graduate, but they, and to your point, you didn't salute correctly. You don't. Your feet aren't at the proper angle. I mean, everything they could do to make you do push-ups and stuff. But after a while, you realize that's the game. You know, yeah, it's just, it's exactly not personal. Right. It's not personal. That's just that's part of the indoctrination. That's the game. And all you have to do is get it in your mind. Is hey, I'm going to survive this. It's not going to kill me. I'm going to survive this. I just that's why we call it game of crimes. It's learning to play the game. Right. Right. Exactly. I knew I could not be broken. So I didn't care. It was just a matter of what do you want me to do now? Okay, more push ups. I'll do them. Whatever. And it hurt and it was uncomfortable. And the whole thing, um, I would say, was not a great experience, though there were great times, right? You look back on those really challenging times in your life, those things that you didn't think you were going to survive, that you doubted yourself. And those were the, the best times because you found another another layer of yourself you didn't know you had. All of that is survivable. And training is designed to help you figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at. And it doesn't matter a day of training. If you fail all day, that's really good training because now you know what you have to work on. Right. There's nothing negative that comes from training. Learn from the mistakes you make and don't make the same mistakes again. Right. Yeah, which is like riding with Murph. I'll never do that again. Just, <laughs> oh, wait till I get that new car you got. Well, we're going to go on a ride. I'm telling you uh, now. Uh, 
I'm telling you, it's the gray wolf. We've never bought a new car ever in our marriage. We finally, I finally broke down because uh, our newest car is a 2003, you know. Um, I have a 2000 Camaro, 2003 Lexus, and a 2003 Expedition. And the Expedition, 128, it only has 128,000 miles, but it's on its last <laughs> legs. But So my neighbor up the street uh, is Secret Service, works actually on the vice presidential protective detail. And we had just bought it, come down, he's looking at me, I'm waving, I'm going, hey, grab your gear, throw it in the back, we'll go do an op. It's a Wolf Gray 2021 Telluride SX. It's got the nightfall package, it's got the upgraded wheels. It looks like something we seized off of a pimped up dope dealer, I'm telling you. <laughs> It looks good. <laughs> That's spectacular. Just don't be seizing my car. I still got to make some payments on it for a while. Well, don't do anything bad, and I won't. Uh, uh, if I do, I'll write a memo, but can I get yes. a hug? <laughs> <laughs> the car looks good. The driver's still questionable. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah but it's so much fun to drive. Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled program. Hey, so you make it out of DEA Academy after writing 722 memos. Yeah, we've Just established about, yep. that, right? Pretty much. What's your first post? So then I come back to Phoenix uh, for my six, well, it was supposed to be 60 days. I took 90 um, just to, and that's your time to kind of get ready, come back to the office, do what you can, and then move to your next one. Now, did you work a couple cases while you were back during your 90 days? Sure, because I couldn't stop myself, right? I was finally, that academy time was very tough for me because I was working and I'm a worker. So it was, it, it was challenging in a different way, but I really missed the job. And the best part, the best part of DEA is the people. But after the people, it's dope deals. Like I love dope deals. So I yeah, could speaking not wait. Of dope deals, um, you had you were masquerading as a stripper. <laughs> That's later. Yes. That's later? Oh my God. Yes. Oh, I thought that was but during yes. your night. Uh, well, okay. We're, that's the, that's what we call in the business the tease. So we'll talk about the stripper later and your stripper name. Steve, I have a stripper name for Steve. We have to come up with a name for Steve. So, but after you get done in Phoenix, right? Where, what's your first uh, actual post? Where did you end up moving to? So then I go to Los Angeles and I work in a China White Heroin Group, um, Group Four in in Los Angeles. So what is what makes China White so special that it needs its own group? Well, funny story, because I didn't know. I had left Phoenix, and it was all black tar heroin down here. So when I got there and they assigned me to this, I started calling around and um, asking police departments, like, how much China White are we seizing? None. There was none in L.A. at the time. So it was just a group that was named and never got upgraded. <laughs> so you're seeing all you're seeing is Mexican heroin come across, right? Yes. At the time, yes. That's that's what we had. Um but like anything else, when you're talking about strategic planning, at some point that was a, a high threat for DEA in LA. And then the threats change. We're always trying to get um get ahead of the threats. So we were able to it was basically a general enforcement. We were able to do any kind of cases that we wanted to do. So what was the most interesting case you worked on while you were in, because when you went, you, when you were in LA, you go from there later, uh, or no, actually it's around 2006. So, but we, this, yeah, actually 2006, the one I want to talk to you about, you worked an interesting case with the folks over in San Bernardino, didn't you? Sure. So after I left general enforcement, I, I did that for two years and then I went over to the MET team. At the time, DEA had and this program. the MET team is? Mobile enforcement team. Um, this program was amazing. It was a local impact 
a team where we would be deployed to different cities at the request of that city to help them clean up their drug trafficking networks. So we were focused really on mid-level traffickers, uh, not so much users. DEA has never really focused on users, but we were we were looking at communities and how do we help the community and put our resources into the communities. The sheriffs love this program. The chiefs of police love this program. The communities love this program because it was really effective. It was defunded back in 2007, and we haven't had it since then. Um, DEA's priorities have always been the big fish, the uh, transnational criminal organizations, the suppliers of narcotics. See, didn't transnational criminal organizations used to be known by another name? It, they, they used to be cartels. We don't say that anymore. So now we they're say transnational, <laughs> but there's, there's only two syllables in cartel. I know. I had to think about it too and how to spell it. <laughs> TCOs. We go after TCOs. See, you see, you see, Sherry, we can dress him up. I can't take him out anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, and I know parties, right though. now the PIO bill is sitting there going, I told you, don't say it. <laughs> in her defense, folks, she didn't say it. I set her up, okay? Yes, she did. Yes, yes. And you're not getting a hug, I'm telling you right now. Well, not from you. I don't no. want a pal. There's no hug. It's off the table. That's yeah. right. That's right. But the, the, cool th- the cool thing about the MET teams, though, was it, it had such an impact on the local community. I love the program. Oh, absolutely. Because we, it's our only time that we looked at neighborhoods. It's our only time that we looked at mid-level traffickers. And was it about big fish? Yes, but it was about neighborhood big fish. So we really focused on gangs. We focused on violence. There was a lot of violent crime Mm -hmm. and it was very high risk, low reward, right? We're not we're not going out and doing a deal for 100 kilos. We're going out and doing a deal for an ounce, which is not something DEA has has historically done. But we were really good at it. Tactically, uh, we, we operated it like a SWAT team. So yeah. we trained a lot. We had uh, tactical proficiencies. It was very safe. It was well done. It was a put well, well-resourced and well-put-together program. But you know something, as somebody who worked at the state and local level too, but it was important. People realize, you may not have done this, but I always appreciated when we did operations with DEA or ATF or even the FBI. It was a quality of life issue, too. It directly impacted the quality of life in a community, and it made the people feel, hey, man, we're safer. This is actually better. Most people aren't impacted when you go to Colombia and you arrest you know, and kill Pablo Escobar. Okay, that makes the news and stuff, but people are going, well, well how, how does that affect me? But when you're right. directly arresting people and making things safer in their neighborhood, people are going, I love you guys. I bet I bet you got hugs for doing that too, didn't you, Sherry? They're, you know, DEA have done, they haven't done a lot of hugging. Um, but yes, I but probably, we're got, a, I probably that, got a few. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. probably did get a few. <laughs> you know, um, I, was, I was on the Met team in Atlanta for two and a half years, and it's the only time when you would culminate an operation, people in the neighborhoods would come out and applaud as you're driving down the street with prisoners in the back seat because you just had a direct impact on their daily lives. Mm-hmm. You just made Absolutely. it safer. Absolutely. And the best part is that we partnered with the local drug enforcement squad. So it wasn't just DEA coming in and pounding our chest saying, we're going to take care of your problems. We came in and worked hand in hand with our local PDs who were Great, great detectives, great investigators. They just need, lacked resources, so they re- mm-hmm. so we came in with money and informants and the ability to uh, to devote time and effort to helping them solve their own problem. Um, and they were great. We have I have lifelong friendships from some of these deployments because those cops were so much fun, uh, and we, we worked really, really hard. Well, and plus you came from the same background as me. We were both local cops before we became federal agents. So you have that, you already have that respect for them. And you already know, like for me, and I don't know if this was you, but 
you know, I know what I thought about Fez and it wasn't good. Right. You know, so now that you are one, you know, you kind of want to dispel that that myth that goes along with feds are all jerks. Um, exactly. So it, was, it, was, it was a great situation. And your local police know what's safe and what's not safe. I don't oh, yeah. know your streets. I don't Correct. know your yeah. neighborhood. They've got so, that local knowledge that is yep. so important on investigations. And that's the thing I, like I said, appreciate. We do these cases with ATF, 924Cs, felon in possession of firearms. We knew the streets they would go to. We know what they were doing. But ATF, to your point, DEA, they'd had the resources. Not, not only that, but they had the wicked equipment, too. Right. Clocks. You know, when the first clocks with the cameras in them and our, one of our dope deals we did. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is one of the fun ones. We're doing a dope deal. We're buying, I think, three or four kilos, and I'm up in the airplane, and uh, we've got flare going, and we see this, you know, with the bus signal is supposed to be, you know, um, can't remember what it was, but we're all on the radio waiting for it, and all of a sudden, we see two people rabbiting out of the motel. Not, not a hotel, folks, a motel. This is Southwest Kansas, right? <laughs> but we see two guys running, and one guy's running really fast, and the other guy's running really slow. And I'm going, hey, let's follow the slow guy. We're going to catch him. Well, it was one of the other cops, the idiot. Instead of saying, hey, I'm chasing this guy, we don't know that up in the airplane. We let the other guy go, but guess how we found the other guy? We cordoned off the area. Some guy let his freaking, you know, huge Rottweiler out. His Rottweiler standing next to this doghouse to fit a huge Rottweiler. The, the suspect who ran was in there. He was cornered by a Rottweiler. That's how easy it was to find this guy. Oh, good catch on the puppy. Right. Yes. Yeah. But it was all cool. But but you should see it in the video, though. I mean, the, the video from the camera on the, on the inside, it was just, it was, we had never seen that stuff before. And it was like, man, this is wicked cool. Anyway, side story. So let's get back to San Bernardino and how you're working this uh, big case. You know, it's got meth, it's got guns. You know, how long did you work this thing? So this was probably, you know how sometimes, and Steve, you know, you're involved in a case and you know, like, this is the case. This is my book. This is someone's book, not my book. Um, well, I guess in your case, it was your book. But <laughs> because you know that what you're doing matters, that you're working the right case at the right time, and it is vastly more important than than today. And so uh, the city of San Bernardino had put in a request, which was the way the, the MET teams were deployed, and they had a significant issue with um, drugs and it, gangs. So we had a, a, you know, outside of LA, uh, west suburbs, or east suburbs, I'm sorry, um, a, lot of, a lot of Hispanic gangs, a lot of violence associated with those gangs, big problems. So they had this big kind of a, a war that was happening among some of the, the Mexican mafia gangs. And so they asked us to come in and, and help. And, the, and most of those gangs, they were, they were narcotics related, you know, and violence related. So there was kind of a three prong and um, we came in, we did a little assessment of crime and, and to see if we could be impactful. And we started this deployment that was spectacular in, every possible way. We started in August and we were finished in December. And by the time we were done, we had arrested over 123 people, seized over $2 million, uh, 50-some cars. And we, the newspaper article the next day was like, the streets of San Bernardino are clear because that was how impactful it was for the community. Yeah. Well, we did our research. Let's, let's let folks really, let's give some of these numbers. This is impressive. 
The bust was the culmination of, of you know, by San Bernardino uh, L.A. field office of the DEA. Over the course of the investigations, officers confiscated. Now, this is from the, the news stories, but there's, I think you've got more detail, but over 820000 in cash, 56 guns, 41 vehicles, 35 pounds of meth, which is the primary group. During the seven-month, officials arrested 119 people, including five men believed to be tox top Mexican mafia associates in San Bernardino. That, that's not just, that, that, that's like the equivalent of a meteor hitting the, the I was going to say fucking planet, but uh, yeah, the fucking planet. That's like huge. You've just, you've just put a crater in there and eliminated a lot of these people right to the source. And the best part is we did it two weeks before Christmas, and we did it all at once. So I had 450 police officers from departments that had oh been helping God. us. 450? <laughs> yes. All on the same day, hit 42 houses, 43 houses, with federal and state search warrants. Wow. It was outstanding. Like, yeah. the, the community was, was rocked in a very positive way. That well, that's cool. an early Christmas present. Ho, ho, ho. That is cool. Shit bags, you're going to jail. And, yeah. and, and just for the listeners that don't know, the Mexican Mafia, what tell the listeners what they're known for. So Mexican Mafia is a prison-based gang. Uh, the Mexican Mafia was started, I think, in 1968 and has uh, very few made members. There is a contingent of a hierarchy, like we were talking about before, with any kind of organized crime. And the made members are the members who are the, the shot callers, really, for the gang. They get taxes from all of the gangs that, that are in line underneath them. And really, all Hispanic gangs pay homage to Mexican mafia. They are kind of the the king and queen. Well, there's no queen. They're kind of the king over all of their, um, you know, different sects. All of them pay taxes. They all fight to get in higher regard and to get a higher level of authority within the Mexican mafia. The Mexican mafia members do on occasion get released from, from jail and they continue. They're treated when they're out of prison, they're treated like royalty and they're, they're not made to work. They are cared for by all of their gangs. So basically, you don't get into the Mexican mafia before prison. The only way you can get into it is by being in prison. Is that right? Yes. And you have to have other made members raise their hand for you, uh, which is not, uh, it's very hard to get three guys who agree. And are they known for any violence? Oh, gosh. The violence. Is... <laughs> hey, what that kind just... of a question is that? <laughs> that goes well, the listeners saying. don't know. The listeners don't yes. know. I think they so, figured it out. <laughs> see, all of the stories from prison and uh, this one informant I had, he had been shot 11 times and stabbed 24 times. So he was telling me the story of his body with scars. And that was all uh, for his gang uh, to, to level up the Mexican mafia. Yeah, it's, oh. it's one of the most violent organizations that's out there. I'm surprised he didn't whistle when he walked, all the wind going through the different <laughs> holes and everything. Right. Jeez. And for the record, if you ever need to know, he said being stabbed actually hurts more than being shot. So, all right. Little, yeah. Little tidbit. You know what? We're going to take his word on that. There, I don't want to know. Don't want to know. <laughs> well, but... But this, what's interesting out of this, though, you guys made this impact, but there was something else that came out of it, though, too, that, that really, uh, I think, is a really fascinating piece of this. Because of this, you had a murder-for-hire investigation arise at, as a result of this, right? Sure. I had—so, um, the way that the case worked, uh, very simply, I had uh, learned about a guy who was in prison who wanted to join Team USA. 
And so I went in and interviewed him to see if there was anything there. And everything he told me, I I wrote down and then I made sure it was all true. And he was a, a gold mine. I, I knew that if I got him out of prison, I could use him in a way that would help the community, the country, all of this the state like of California. This sounds like 48 hours. What, are you Nick Nolte getting Eddie Murphy out of prison now? Pretty much. That's, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what I did. And getting someone out of prison, for the record, is not easy to do. It's um, it's a lot of work and well, a lot much, of justification. So this guy, how much time was he serving, and at what stage of that was he at when you got him out? So he was 29 years old when I met him. And from the time he was 18... He had been out of prison for over 200 days total. Jeez, that's it. So he just was on that repeat offender plan where he was just going back. And narcotics trafficking, yes, doing stuff for his gang. And he had devoted his entire life from the time he was 11 years old until uh, 29 to this gang. Well, and why does a hardcore gangbanger like that, you know, been shot, stabbed, all, all this? Why does somebody decide to join Team USA? I mean, what happens in his mind that says, hey, I, I want to bat for the other side now? So, and I'm fascinated by this, but the psychology of gangs is amazing. They're, they are very loving to each other. And I, when I was listening to wiretaps and I, I was kind of more involved in their lives, they never hang up without telling each other they love each other. It's a very um, affectionate organization. So when you're 11 years old and you have an older boy come put his arm around you, and in the case of my informant, his his father had passed. So he didn't have a male role model. His mom was working three jobs to support him. And here we have a 16-year-old boy who's a member of a gang who comes in and says, I love you let's go sell dope together. And so these little boys, young men get wrapped into this idea of family and loyalty. And and it's kind of a brainwashing, but it's, it's really done with these family values behind it in, a, in an almost disturbing way. And so now we have loyalty, like what would you do for your dad? What would you do for your mom? And now we have these little boys committing felonies and doing really evil deeds because they're vying for the love and affection mm-hmm. of the older boys in this gang. They have a sense of belonging now. They belong to something. Yes. Somebody cares for them. And it's pretty powerful when you're all of a sudden in a group and the people are saying, I would die for you. I would do this for you. Like they're going to put themselves at risk for this, for each other. So he gets locked in hook, line and sinker. And he now lives his life for this gang. And after spending most of his adult life, minus the 200 days, um, he gets lonely. And what happened, the fatal flaw of, of the, the gangs, the fatal flaw of the, uh, the people that he was loyal to is they didn't send him a card. They didn't send him a card while he was in prison. And that was something that he couldn't overcome. Not money, not anything else. He just wanted someone to send him a card. because Even a cheesy you know, greeting card that says, thinking of you, sweet yes, thing, would have been good for him. exactly what he wanted. The, those, the cards between each they are very, they're very much like love letters. They're all of this loyalty and love and um, 
they're beautiful to read and disturbing at the same time. And nobody sent him a card. So if it was, it was more like out of sight, out of mind then. Yeah. And he felt like, here, I've sacrificed all of this for you, and nobody misses me. Nobody you can't sent even me write me one freaking card. He's been disrespected. Yep. And that, for him, was his, um, their fatal flaw. And he decided— so he reached out, he reached out, because he, he at that point, he reached out and he said, hey, I think I can help you? Right. He was interviewed by another agency, and that agency— I had a relationship with them. They let me know this guy existed. And I was working so close with the San Bernardino Police Department, and they were amazing. These these detectives worked harder than anyone I've ever met in my life. They, um, they said he is what he is, and they came with me, and we interviewed him together, and, um, and we decided it was worth it. How long did it take for you to realize this was the real deal? Because you look, everybody, I, I've talked to people in prison. I, I've talked to guys who were major dope dealers, you know, or, you know, homicide suspects. And they're always jobs and Jesus. You know, I, I've, you know, just, I, you know, how did you, how did you cut through all the BS and get down to the point of go, this is the real deal? Was it, was it, I know you have to do the vetting, you have to trust, but verify, but what about it in his discussion with you told you that, hey, th- this guy's really sincere? It it was his demeanor, and it was the story about the card. Because for me, that doesn't make sense. And yet, when somebody tells you that, and you can see in his eyes, like he was out for revenge, and didn't really want anything from it. He wanted them to know it was him that took him down, and that was really all he asked for. And he still had to go to prison. Like I didn't get him out of prison, and he was done. He still had a prison sentence to serve, and he had other charges that were pending. So he still had this this whole stack of uncertainty. And although I could talk about what he did for the United States government, I can't. You I'm can't not promise a judge. him anything. No. Yeah. So how? So this is gonna. This is gonna. People are gonna be worded up. This, but how the hell? First of all, how the hell do you get somebody out of prison? And then when you get him out, and this guy's been in prison almost all his life doing stuff for the gang, how the hell do you trust him? Oh, you you don't. Well, I mean, that's, you keep your friends close, you keep your enemies closer. Um, You don't. Although I will tell you, he is the best informant I've ever had in my my life. If he told me, go to the corner of walk and don't walk and put your hand up an elephant's butt, I would do it because I know there'd be dope up there because he, because I Okay. Yeah. yeah, God bless you. Just use one of those really long gloves like the veterinarian shoes because I am not, I am not processing your dope for you on that one. No, But... That's that's at the end of our, our That's the time level together. of trust you had in him. Yes, towards the end, right? But you always, it's just like undercover, you have to keep your head straight. This is not your friend. This is somebody that you're, you're exploiting for an endgame. And so everything that he told me, I had to vet. So we had to do a lot of safety things, too. We had to make sure that we, he had 24-hour surveillance on him all the time. We didn't just let him go. The biggest thing we did was I was his girlfriend, so he had to be with me all of the time. So there was at least, and I had a, my brother in town who was our cover team, so there were two agents with him wherever we went together. So what was his cover story? How, how does somebody get out of prison all of a sudden? It's like he's in prison on a Friday and he's out on a Monday, and there's no parole hearing, there's no probe. I mean... You know, how do you arrange that so that he's out of prison and it doesn't raise red flags? So we we posed that to him, like, what are we going to say? And he said, "I he knows what he was going to do. He said, I'll tell them you guys lost the dope. 
And I said, do you think that would work? And so he wrote a letter to one of the maid guys saying, hey, they lost the dope in my case. I'm going to get out. And that they, everyone believed it. But also this informant had had such a history in the, in the organization that he could have said anything and he was an enforcer. So nobody was going to really question him. So a lot of it is when you're choosing the people to help you on your investigation, their role in the organization is hugely important. So he was, he was always an enforcer. He was always somebody who was respected. Um, So we just kind of played on that and we were able to kind of spin our own narrative and people didn't really ask him too many questions. They were just happy to see him. Thanks for listening to part one of Sherry Oz from the Baseball Hall of Fame to DEA. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up in part two, which will drop on Thursday. In the meantime, go visit us over on our webpage, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot of great stuff there, our merchandise, our mailing list. Make sure you know what's going on. Follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on Facebook and Instagram. And as always, if you have any stories, send it to us at GameOfCrimesPodcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments there. Also, Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of of great content that's over there right now. We've got more stuff coming out every single week. Make sure you join us there, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. So everybody, stay tuned. Part two of Sherry Oz from Baseball Hall of Fame to DEA is coming out this Thursday.